0: (laughs) This bundle of emotions, right? I'm going for a job of a lifetime. Uh, My mom had, at that point, had passed away just a couple months uh, before that, and then I also had to like focus to to for a job in view before I could take my dad to see if he can live a little longer. So that was that was a strange day.
1: Welcome to Immigrantly, a podcast that explores the intersectionality of racial identity, culture, and class through the lens of immigrant experiences. Before we begin our episode, a quick reminder that we have GoFundMe set up. Please donate whatever you feel comfortable donating. Your donations help us keep the lights on here every dollar counts. You can get the link on our website at immigrantlypod.com. And now to our guest for the show, Donnie Khan is a senior marketing director at National Hockey League. He's part of Indivisible Westchester County. Indivisible is a nationwide movement of thousands of volunteer-led local groups that engage in progressive advocacy and electoral work at the local, state, and national levels. Initially from Pakistan, Donny demonstrates contagious optimism in his work and life, and I'm pretty sure Donny can tell his story far better than I can. So without further ado, let's get into it. Welcome, Donny. Welcome to my show. So good to have you here.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Sally. This is great. So
1: we'll start with your parents. Both of them came from very different backgrounds, and your dad's family lived on Pakistan side of the border at the time of partition of 1947. Your mother's family migrated from India. Did that inform their understanding of the world, and how did it facilitate your move to the U.S.?
0: That's a, that's a great question, uh, first of all, and I think— um you know it it was interesting, and I think just to kind of give the listeners a, a quick background, so my my parents, my dad's side of the family was already on the Pakistani side, as you said, and uh, they had uh, established. the family was established. They had a business. Um, they were in the shoe retail business. Khan shoes was the was the business on their side. And on the other side, my mom's family was on the India side. And uh, my grandfather ran and had textile farms our uh, factories. and when the when the whole uh, partition happened, Mom's family had to leave everything that they had in India, and they had to essentially. It was, uh, you know, through their Hindu friends who actually hid them in the back of a truck and helped them escape India to Pakistan. So, the thing that happened on my mom's side was a sort of a story of 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 survival mm-hmm. and, and strong will. That my grandmother really had a lot to do with it on my on my mom's side. She really hunkered down and you know my grandfather actually passed away soon after moving to Pakistan too so my grandmother was left with five kids four daughters and a son and she really made sure that they got to school and and they went to college and they got their degrees and and I mean that was at a time that you know a lot of people were thinking even of going to college but the fact that she had four daughters and she sent them to school and sent them to college was a I thought was an accomplishment in itself and and it was there my mom eventually became a biology professor at the University of Karachi, and my dad was an English literature professor there. Mm-hmm. So they actually ended up meeting, falling in love, and at a time, you know, sort of arranged marriages, they kind of uh, got their families to, to marry the person that they love rather than something that was planned in a, a ahead of schedule. So that sort of really helped define their worldview. And my dad, on the other side, was very influenced by Western culture, so he... Wanted to go study in the U.S. or study in England. He was constantly trying to get his um, his dad, or my grandfather, to send him. And my grandfather kind of felt like you know that was that was a big deal back then. So uh, he didn't get a chance to do that. But he became you know sort of immersed himself in Western culture, and he became an English literature professor. He always had like books in his house, in our house, on every topic that you can imagine. So between the two of them, like I think that kind of sort of brought together this understanding that there is people outside your your bubble and your own circle, I think. And that sort of, you know, opened us up to to Western culture to eventually move here to the U.S.
1: So, Donnie, your father had never visited the U.S., but he was so enamored with Western ideals and Western culture. Why do you think that was the case?
0: You know, that's—I think he—you're right. He, he had never visited. And it was funny for us because— When we were kids, he always tells stories of the West, and it was almost like he had lived here all his life. But because he had read so many books and he had watched so many movies and he had sort of immersed himself in that culture, I think he also part of it also had to do with the fact that he was a sort of a free spirited, free thinker. He was more of an artist type. Um, Mm -hmm. So he, you know, he he drew, he painted, he sketched. He even would go and find like clay, and he would uh, create like statues and things like that, which I had a lot of fun uh, watching him do that. That by itself just kind of lent itself to like, well, there's this whole world outside that you can go and do this, you know, all the time, and it, it, it sort of and, and it sort of inspired him a little bit. I think that was probably a lot to do with that.
1: And your parents' family, especially your dad's family. Is was pretty well off in Pakistan, right? Yeah. You They le- led a very comfortable life. Yeah. And then your dad decides to come to the U.S. later in life. What do you think? What triggered him to um, make that decision? And again, what you told us about your dad, he was just like he had this of America a utopian society yeah. at least a, a utopian experiment to say the yes. least yes how was it how was reality different from what he had expected when or what he envisioned when he was in Pakistan
0: yeah and you know it was funny because my what sort of prompted the move uh, eventually for us to move to the US i think we came to a conclusion that life would be so in Pakistan you know politically things were shifting hmm. so my when my dad grew up at a time when we had a duly elected prime minister. He was overthrown by a military dictator, and uh, you know a lot of unrest and all that. And at the same time, with an aunt who had moved here I was a citizen. So we'd always talked about the kids would get a better education, have a better future if we moved to the U.S. But my dad never really, both my mom and my dad, because they they were you know they were entrenched. It's hard, uh, hard to kind of move to a different country. Uh, he was about fifty by the time we moved mm-hmm. here. My mom was around forty. So. I actually sort of prompted the move. Like, we came here, we came to visit the U.S. in 1983.
1: and So how old were you when you first visited the U.S.? When I
0: first visited I was about 11. Hmm. We loved it. And then we went back to Pakistan, and then we came to visit again in 86, 87. And somewhere, so I was about 13 and a half, hmm. uh, something like that, almost 14. And I decided to... Uh, make a move, and I said, You know, we always talk about moving to the US, and unless one of us takes a bold step, it's never going to happen. And
1: so, you were just a kid I who was... decided to do this.
0: <laughs> it sounds so crazy. I have two kids yeah. now, and it sounds so crazy to me now, but uh, and I can't, I, I don't think I that might have been the bravest or the boldest thing that I've done uh, in my life at like uh, I think I around 13 or 14, but aunt who had three daughters she kind of saw me as a son that she never had so mm. she was on board with the idea she was like sure leave him here and you know and I had bad asthma and you know i was seeing doc, you know when i was younger uh, so i was like you know he'll get good care he'll get good education you guys can go back and and then come back when you've settled your affairs and then move here and it was only going to be for a little bit and then they went back and you know how it, it takes a long time to sell your house and yeah. you know take care of your business and make sure you make the move and all that So uh, two years went by before they kind of came back. And this was before the Internet and, you know, cell phones and things like that. So there's no Skype or FaceTime. So basically letter writing and the long-distance phone calls that you have to kind of plan that you're going to call at this time. (laughs) What was the most difficult
1: part of staying away from your family for those two years?
0: Me, because I was was like a kid in a candy store because I... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it was it was difficult not having my family around, but at the same time I kinda of felt like felt like I was made for this for this country. I felt like I was I was taking everything in. I was running around trying to make friends. Uh one of the tougher parts was that my my uncle was a very uh strictly religious person and I was raised in a household that really wasn't now uh, my dad wasn't very religious, my mom was, but not to the point of, you know, being very hard on us about things. Yeah. So was a that was a tough adjustment uh, for me to be in a country where I'm just I want to be running around all the time, meeting <laughs> people, making friends, and you know uh, uh, I'm expected to be like go to prayers all the time, and things like that. So that part was was the tougher part. Two years later, my mom and my youngest brother moved here. And about a year or so after that, my uh, my dad and my two sisters. Mm-hmm. So like eventually, our whole family moved here. So what
1: was the most difficult part of transition for your dad and your mom?
0: Interestingly, that's where their backgrounds, I felt like, really came through because mm-hmm. my mom was always a worker. So when we when I was born, she was a professor, and then she sort of started teaching uh, at the high school level because she wanted more time at home with the kids. And she never—just a selfless person. She just worked nonstop and— When she came here, she didn't really care about what degrees she had or, you know, much like a lot of immigrants that come to this country, she just wanted to make sure that she was providing for her family. And so she became a cashier at the store that my uh, aunt and uncle had. Mm -hmm. And she just worked nonstop. I remember she actually worked without taking a day off for seven straight years. And I Mm -hmm. would ask her, I'd be like, why? Well, how come you don't take a day off? I mean, now, Saturdays and Sundays, the days were a little bit shorter because the store was only open so many hours, but... She's like, well, you know, I get paid by the hour and I think that every hour that I don't work, I'm not providing for my family. That was that's just how she was. And Dad had a little bit of a tougher time because he had grown up in a household that where he was always well off. He had a huge house in Pakistan. He uh, even though he was a professor, after he was done teaching, he took over the family business, which is like a chain of three retail stores. So Everyone kind of knew him as Khan Saib, and you know there was like, uh, (laughs) you know everything, and all the sort of the dealings in Pakistan at his level were always with a handshake. You know, your word is bond, basically, and that sort of thing. And when he moved here, he was fifty years old, and never really thought about what a resume might look like, or you know what you know what you need. And even though he had all these degrees and ran his own business, he wasn't really sure how to put that forward to get a to get a good job. So he was. He was, you know, he was pretty. De- for the first couple of years, he was pretty depressed. He kind of like went into this thing where he was just quiet and keeping to himself. And he first he came out and he was looking for a job and everything. When it wasn't happening, he just kind of like shrunk into himself himself a little bit. He finally got himself together. Just took basically like, a, you know, went to one of these temp agencies and just took like a menial job um, working in a records department of um, J.P. Morgan Chase and eventually became Iron Mountain. So. Kind of, he was comfortable doing that, but I, you know, I would always say that I can't believe, that, you know, this is that you're you're okay doing this when you you know you used to write and you used to paint and sculpt and rent your own business, but, but I think that happens a lot to you know. Yeah,
1: absolutely, I think it's especially immigrants who come later in life because, come early, it's it's very like it's relatively easy to adjust. Came early, so it's it's much easier to adjust than but i i can't imagine my parents coming yeah. to the us now because they have such a comfortable life there and that's something that people don't realize people always think that immigrants are like there is this narrative around immigrants but most of them in fact some i mean some of them are very comfortable um, living where they are and the kind of lifestyle that they lead. Exactly. Donnie, talking about hockey, yes.
0: uh,
1: that's your passion. Yes. And is. this goes back. or You are working as a marketing director for NHL right now, but this goes way back. Yes. Can you give, and your American experience is very much tied to your passion for hockey and your love for hockey. Can you give us context for that?
0: Yeah, and, you know, it's a strange thing when you think about it that uh, that a 14-year-old from Pakistan would fall in love with hockey, right? And yeah. I think, for me, first moved here and I was on but my own. But we do
1: have hockey in Pakistan. It's there a different was, kind of yeah, hockey. Field hockey.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's right, we do have field hockey. Um, but, you know, when I moved here, those two years that I was by myself before my mom and my brother moved, kind of trying to find myself, right? I was trying to fit in. I was trying to make friends. And I was also... Uh, even though I was getting in trouble, I was being very careful. Not, I knew that I was, in, I, was in, um, uh, I was smart enough to know that, hey, my parents aren't here. I'm 14 years old. I have to kind of watch out for myself. and I have to make sure that the friends I make are not, you know, too bad of an influence on me. Which, thinking back on all that, just all sounds a little surreal uh, now. But in that time... I was following American sports, and I wanted to learn all the American sports and all that. But I also didn't want to be sort of a bandwagon guy. So I figured everybody liked football. Everybody liked baseball. I was like, what did—you know, and then I came across hockey. And I remember uh, back in those days, they would just put the Rangers game on free TV whenever the Knicks were playing, too. So just—it uh, was on a channel that we normally didn't even get, but I was watching. And I was like, oh, this is kind of interesting. And then I just got hooked into it, and I started watching hockey games, and then I would save. I would work at my aunt and uncle's store after school, and I would come back, and I would, in the summertime, I would make my aunt drop me off uh, at hockey camp. God bless her for driving me uh, there every morning, <laughs> <laughs> picking me back up. And in the wintertime, I started, you know, all my friends that had ponds, you know, got to know all the people who had ponds. In our, we had about three ponds in our in our little town of Pauling, New York, and uh, we started playing uh, pond hockey. Uh, when the rollerblades first came out, like my brother and I went and got some rollerblades, and then uh, my friends Anthony and and we all ended up getting rollerblades and roller hockey in, in the school parking lots, and, and it just kind of grew. We convinced the town to actually start a roller hockey league for little kids, so even when I went away to college, I would come back and coach little kids uh, in the summertime uh, with roller hockey, and uh, I went to Plattsburgh State for communications. And one of the reasons I went there is that they had a good hockey team and their mm. communications program. So uh, I did play-by-play for the Plattsburgh uh, Cardinals hockey team on radio and then TV as well. So passion was 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 there. And I think uh, it's sort of a, you know, I, I'm so grateful that now I'm actually working at the NHL, which is something that I would have never have thought of uh, when I was like...
1: So how did that happen? How did you end up with NHL?
0: So I, after college, I pretty much was trying for, like, 10 years to get into the NHL. And I I would apply to anything that opened up, and I would never hear back. And I was like, okay, you know, I'm sure there's plenty of people who are trying to uh, trying to get in. And I worked in advertising in New York. After college, I stayed at home for, like, a year, commuted into the city, and then eventually saved up enough money to move mm-hmm. uh, move to the city. And um, I would apply for anything that would open up, either with the Rangers and the Islanders or the NHL themselves, and I wouldn't hear anything back. And Then about, just go by. And I was like, all right, you know, I've tried enough. I think it's time to give up on this. you were
1: persistent. (laughs) Yes, I
0: tried. (laughs) And And then 2008, possibly the worst time of my life. It was Mm -hmm. um, my mom uh, passed away from cancer in May of 2008. And about three weeks after Mm -hmm. she passed away, um, we found out that my dad had uh, lung cancer. And he had four, but they were given, they had given him four months to live. And that was a time that we couldn't, um, it was hard to kind of function, right? Like it's, um, we we don't have a lot of relatives except for my aunt and uncle at the time. And to, you know, he's just getting over the, the mom passing and then you find out that your dad's dying and then, my dad had no interest. My mom was a fighter. My dad was like, you know, she's gone and I don't want any, any treatments. I just, you know, I just want to go in peace. And I, he kind of saw what treatments do to, you know, the chemo and all that. So at this point, completely, at, you know, at the lowest point in my life, mm-hmm. I'm sitting in my, um, at my desk and I get an email from a friend who said, hey, you know, I know, um, I know you're a big hockey fan, uh, so I thought I'd pass this on. I don't know if you're still interested. So... I look, at, I look at the email, and it's a job um, posting, essentially. And the NHL had gotten a new chief operating officer who had sort of revamped the marketing team, and they uh, had posted this job. And before they posted it widely, they sent a, uh, the, uh, the person who is now my, my direct supervisor had sent an email to a few people in the advertising business to see if there's somebody fit this description. I took it, and I, um, I was like, well you know, this is strange, you know, this, for all the times that I've been trying and now this comes up, so I decided to write, a instead of writing a cover letter that I'd been sending, you know, sort of like the form, uh, the regular form cover letter, I decided to write from my heart and what hockey means to me and what my experience was like and what they should be doing to promote the game and make it bigger and sort of put the players on a pedestal and, you know, those are the, the players are the ones that sort of, uh, they're so different than, than most sports and, and, you know, they're, they're modest and humble and, and strong and they have like a code of ethics and conduct. And so I put all that down in this long-winded <laughs> email and uh, I didn't hear anything for several weeks. I was like, all right, well, like, there goes another one, you know, and uh, yeah. then finally I finally get a call uh, or I get an email back saying, hey, you know, you have a great story. Why don't, you come in and, uh, uh, why don't you come in and talk to us? So I went in and that day was also a very strange one because... That was also a day that I was scheduled to take my dad for a second opinion at Sloan Gathering to see if there was going to be any chance for them to do something for him. So I <laughs> had this bundle of emotions, right? I'm going for a job of a lifetime. Yeah. Uh, my mom had, at that point had passed away just a couple of months mm. uh, before that. And then I also had to, like, focus to to for a job interview Uh before I could take my dad yeah. to see if he can live a little longer. So it was, that was a strange day. Yeah, I got into the city, and I tell you, it was, but once I got in there and started talking about hockey, everything kind of felt normal for a while, which was really really nice. And I was supposed to be there for like one hour, meeting with one or two people. And next thing I know, I was there for like three hours, end up meeting with, like the head of marketing and HR, and all those people came out. And uh, it just felt natural and normal to be talking about hockey and how to grow the game and how to promote the game. And I left, and then I remember my sister met me in the Ups Ferry so I could pick up my dad and then drive him back into the city for to Sloan Kettering. And, um, and then for three months, I didn't hear anything back from them. So I was like, well, I, you know, I don't. So I was checking in, and they were like, hey, you know, we're still thinking about it. And, you know, we're just a little bit slow. And I remember. We, because my dad was kind of on his last uh, mm-hmm. last few days, and one of our cousins from Pakistan uh, came to visit him, and I, we all went to the airport to pick him up. And as we were driving back, phone call, and I put because I was driving, so I put on the speakerphone. And it was like the head of marketing and the the, the person who was now my boss uh, calling, say, hey, we'd like to make you an offer, and I think uh, we were thrilled. Mm. That was uh, that was an amazing day.
1: That's an amazing story. how yeah. has uh, hockey changed since you joined in terms of diversity within the, the the field have you made any strides in making that possible
0: yeah you know actually when i first got here as part of i was literally the second person that was hired in this new marketing department mm. so uh, the first couple of years i focused entirely on sort of like promoting the brand of the national hockey league raising our profile improving the creative product we, we did a great job of that, but the last three or four years, once that sort of kind of was set, and now we have a full marketing team uh, that's dedicated to, to making sure that the brand is thriving, but focusing on some of the so the cause and community and diversity and inclusion programming. And two years ago, we hired Kim Davis, who is our executive VP of a department called SGL, which is Social Impact, Growth, and Legislative Affairs. And I work I still sit on the marketing team, but I work directly with her, and we have really focused on um, making hockey more accessible. Mm. Because I think, you know, I think my story is 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 proof directly that you don't really, you know, anyone can anyone can play hockey. Anyone we always say hockey is for everyone, and that's truly sort of where my story comes in. And so we. We always used to have Hockey Cancer, and we always had hockey's for Everyone programming at the NHL, but we've really grown it in the last couple of years. So last year, we did our first full Black History Month in February. We did a first Gender Equality Month in March. Uh, we did a Pride Month in June. Sure, year, we we're also adding Hispanic Heritage Month. And I think mm. the—you know, for a long time, I think we, we struggled with the fact that hockey is the players are predominantly white. So does that— give us the license or do we have the license to go and, and sort of open the game up to other minorities and people of color and and, and uh, a, diver- a more diverse audience and I think our philosophy is that you, you don't have to like anyone can, can like and love and play the game and that you have to show people and you have to find those stories to let people feel more comfortable because I think people need to see other people like them even if it's not at the NHL level and I think for example, there is a tournament coming up in Florida this uh, coming weekend where this gentleman started this, working with the Florida Panthers, and uh, he invites teams from Latin American countries to come and participate in this two-day. So you have to, uh, hockey teams, ice hockey teams from Mexico and Chile and Argentina and Brazil. That You wouldn't you would never, expect
1: that, right? You wouldn't <laughs> expect
0: it. And I think, you know, my job now is to make sure that we find these stories and we tell these stories so that people, when they see it, they realize that... Hockey is not this, you know, uh, exclusive sport that this anyone can play it, and everyone is welcome.
1: Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about Indivisible, who are actively involved in Indivisible Westchester. You played an important role in creating their podcast. I was listening to one of the episodes. um, Great show, by the way. Thank you. And in one of the episodes, you were talking about how you would give like thumbs down to people who are very critical of, potential hopefuls. Why, why do you think people should not be critical?
0: Right now, we are in the, you know, I, I can't find a proper analogy for it, but I feel like it's, um we're in a stage where our house is on fire, and we don't want to be fighting about which water is best to put it out, that sort of thing. You know, I think, I feel that Part of it is the media, right? Like, I think when, when you have 20-something candidates, hopefully by the next debate, things will, you know, are, are starting to dwindle down a little bit.
1: Are we down to 10 now? 10, I guess I've lost count. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: I think we're down to 10. And I think, uh, you know, we don't, I don't think we realize that how entrenched we get in our positions when we start to criticize because people have their favorites, right? And I think it's uh, it's easy enough to say, hey, you know, oh, you know, Biden's leading right now, but I really think it should be Kamala Harris or Elizabeth Warren. That, um, but, you know, when we saw that with Bernie Sanders, I felt like there was a lot of Bernie Sanders voters who kind of couldn't get them so themselves to get fired up about Hillary Clinton when she, when she became the nominee, even though Bernie himself was saying, you know, I'm all in for Hillary, go vote for her.
1: Yeah, but, Donnie, here's my concern with that. I feel like it's so important to flush out any weak narratives that they may have or any policy proposals that are not going to work because yeah. they are facing very friendly audience yeah they they will be facing much harsher criticism and audience in future and for me it is so important that i know who will best represent me? So for, for that, I should look at Biden's record, and I should I should be able to criticize what Kamala Harris did with like when she was general, yes, yeah. right? So I think all of that should matter because I think in two thousand and sixteen elections, what we missed out was we weren't as stringent. Had yeah. we been as stringent with say Hillary. Things may have been different. Who knows, right? Because everybody had already assumed that she was the establishment candidate and she was the so called quote unquote electable.
0: Yes. Um, which,
1: again, I completely disagree with because electability in, in the US right now, you don't know who is electable anymore. So that, that's where I'm coming from. I feel like it's important that we do that so that we can flush out people who we think are not representative of our values.
0: Uh, I, I don't disagree with that. I think uh, where I come from, which I wish the Democratic Party did more of, and maybe it's, it's the marketer in me that sort of yeah. thinks this way, but, you know, the Democratic Party and this Democratic establishment, sort of they have this mentality that what's going on on the outside and what should we do to react to it? And maybe that's a good way to govern, right? And as a, if you mm-hmm. are a... If you're governing anything, you should want to know what's happening in in, in 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 the country and then react to the needs of the people. But for this election period where you need to win something, right, it's almost like if, uh, you know, as with my marketing advertising background, where it's more almost like you're trying to sell a product. Uh, the Republicans do a much better job of worrying less about what everybody's saying right now and what they're going to make them say or think down the road. So,
1: yeah, but in two thousand and sixteen elections, there were a lot of Republicans, and a lot of them were critical of each other yeah. as well. So there was a lot of vetting process going yeah. on, through, even before primaries, and that's where Democrats came up
0: with Trump. After yeah, they, all.
1: they <laughs> did. They did. But my point is, that's what they did.
0: Yeah. No, I, I think the vetting process is. Is good, and I think it's we want to make sure that we understand what each candidate is doing and where they're bringing everything from. But I, although I, I also don't think that they are vastly different from each other at this point. I mean, for mm-hmm. the most part, as far as equality goes, as far as climate goes, you know, general foreign policy, um, there is not a healthcare, education. Mm-hmm. There isn't a vast divide between the different candidates. So my fear is just that, given that. We want to. We don't want to put somebody in there that we don't think is qualified. But I don't think there's anybody on our side that wouldn't already be head and shoulders above, um, above Trump. But again, I would go and I also think that, you know, this whole thing is that whoever it is, we have to put forward such a strong argument for them that there is no question that, that that's the right. Do
1: part. you have any favorites?
0: You know, I have a lot. Actually, I have a lot. And, you know, I, I'm going to do something exactly what I say that <laughs> everybody shouldn't be doing. But I love that Joe Biden is leading still. I I wish he had run like five years ago, even, or 10 years ago. I think Elizabeth Warren is is my early favorite right now. But Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg, Kamala Harris, a Cory Booker even, like I feel like all those are are, are – are much stronger and yeah. smarter candidates than, than you know. Uh, Bernie, I loved Bernie in last, uh, in 2016. I went to a few of his uh, rallies and, and and speeches and I voted for him in the primary. But I feel like Bernie and Joe, and I'm contradicting what I was saying, I feel obviously <laughs> if they were to be the candidates, I would vote for them. But I feel like we have such a strong crop that's a little bit on the younger side and, has, and also has, you know, Elizabeth Warren, she has really won me over. Uh, but
1: she's not that young. We think. Yes, she's she is. not. No. You know, it's like she, it's the energy that she brings, but she's not that young. Yeah,
0: and it's a different perspective, right? It's a different we perspective. haven't had, you know, as Hillary has opened up this. You know, I don't, I don't think Hillary Clinton gets the, um, the credit that she deserves for opening up the field on the Democratic side for so many women to step up and. You know, to the point where it's not even a thing anymore, right? Or, and it is—it's is still a challenge for them. It's always harder for a woman or any minority to be trying to push through, but it is a lot less of a of a debate, you know. And there's still—I still run into people who say, "Oh." Not sure if we can elect a woman to be president or not sure if we'll it elect a I, surprises me. Yeah. And I'm like, if you are running against Trump and you can't, if, if you think anyone can't be <laughs> then you should not be part of the process at all.
1: Johnny, in terms of Muslim involvement um, in national discourse around politics and advocacy, do you sh- see a shift in the current Democratic Party from treating Muslims as tokens to— considering them or accepting them as an essential constituency? Have you seen that shift? And how important is that shift for Muslim community?
0: Well, I think it's very important. but I, And I think the shift is happening, but I don't think we're there yet. I think we still have a lot of work to do. And I think, uh, you know, it's interesting for me because just what I was saying earlier is that I'm not a, not a sort of a typical Muslim, right? I'm more of a Muslim uh, culturally than I am religiously. But I am very involved in trying to make sure that the community uh, itself does not uh, get forgotten or, or has some way to stand up to the mm-hmm. constant attacks that come out of this administration. So, uh, uh, one of my uh, uh, steering committee members on Indivisible Westchester and I, for our uh we had started the American Muslims Indivisible, which is a sort of an offshoot of Indivisible Westchester to try to introduce politicians in Westchester and New York State to the Muslim community. And so we rallied, and we had, uh, amongst many other things that Indivisible Westchester did, we also had a meet and greet with the Muslim community, with George Latimer. And I remember one of the people leaving, in the audience said to me, you know, I've been living in Westchester for 30 years. I've never had a politician come and meet with the Muslim community, which I thought was uh, amazing and, and, and scary at the same time. We we uh, we're trying to do that more often, uh, you know, schedules being what they are, and everybody's got full time jobs, and, and and trying to uh, trying to keep going. But I think it's very important to make our voices heard. And I think Muslim community as a whole. Well, there's a couple of things. If <laughs> if I go too deep into this, just stop me. But I think our community is revolves around the religion, right? And I think yeah. that becomes uh, an issue into itself. So mm-hmm. it's been hard for someone like me who who doesn't pray uh, all the time to to be going and, you know, you have to go into a mosque and whenever you meet with, a, if you want to meet with a large group of people, uh, you have to go to a mosque and speak to people there but
1: and i think that's something that we see more in uh, american muslim society because if you go back to say pakistan yes. you see all different sorts of muslims right some will be more devout muslims others won't so there is this broad spectrum of kind of muslims that you see exactly and uh, as you said it's also important to connect culturally than just on religion um because again muslims are not a monolithic group so there are different cultures different of what Islam really is, how do you think we can Muslims can reconcile with that? Because one thing I know for sure, Muslims have terrible PR. Right. We need we need to <laughs> be we need somebody to <laughs> you know, help us there.
0: No, I, I agree, and I think that's sort of bringing forth. And I think like Muslims for Progress uh, is doing a lot of great work with that. And, and we we're working with them a little bit as well. And that's our goal, too, is for American Muslims Indivisible, is to try to focus more on sort of show our culture more, right? And yeah. I think we want to get back to the place where there's, a, you know, a million different kinds of Muslim people. They come from 100 different countries. They have, uh, you know, varying levels of, uh, of, of religious involvement. That's what we want to put forward. I think that's, uh, you know, the more you expose people to anything, right, the more comfortable you get. I mean, a lot of times, right now, a, we're, we're a small number, and B, a lot of people haven't met many Muslims. Um, so I think the more we sort of put our culture out there, and introduce uh, introduce people to our culture and our people, I think that that only helps. And I think starting with, poli- at least for our part, starting with the politicians, I think is is a good is a good step to let them know that we have a group that can bring out the votes, can knock on doors, can donate money. Yeah. Those are all things that are important to them.
1: So talking about culture, you're raising two kids yes. in a biracial household. Yes. Uh, how is that experience like? And how do you reconcile both cultures at home?
0: You know, it's it, it's great. So my wife is um, Irish Catholic mm-hmm. and uh, she's American Irish Catholic. And kids, you know, they value both cultures. They they love, you know, both my kids have done, you know, whenever they have uh, have a nine-year-old, actually today is their first day of school. So <laughs> one is starting fourth grade and one is starting eighth grade. Whenever there is a uh, like cultural affair in the school or whenever there's a book report due or an assignment, they love digging into both the Irish and Pakistani cultures to uh, to, to tell that story and to sort of celebrate like, how these two cultures come together and who they are, which, uh, which I love. So
1: Can they eat spicy food? <laughs>
0: not so much. <laughs> not so much. I mean, they, they can do a little bit, but not, not, uh, not a ton.
1: My kids can't eat spicy food, That's especially okay. my older one. She just hates it. Before we wrap up, were you describe America in a word or a sentence? How would you do that?
0: go longer than a word but i just have Uh, absolutely go ahead yeah this is something that i've thought a lot about about Mm -hmm. my story is that it's it's an interesting story that a 13 or 14 year old would come to the u.s and would convince his parents to leave him here and then you know then fall in love with hockey and then you know i'm working at the nhl but the thing the thing that i that stands out to me that nowhere else we would do that. And I don't mean in terms of opportunity, right? There's plenty of Euro- European countries where you can you can uh, strive and make a good living for yourself. But there's something about the United States of America, about this country, that gives people so much hope that they can come here and make a good life for themselves, that they can leave their child here and know that everything is going to be okay. And that, to me, is is America that... It's not just hope and not just opportunity, but this collection of Mm. several things that makes us. And, and, you know, it is it is exceptional in that way, you know, and I think. Absolutely. um, And unfortunately, I think a lot of people these days are forgetting, forgetting what makes us exceptional. I mean, a lot of people are happy to wave the flags, but they forget what truly makes this country great. And I think that's uh, that's what this this place is to me.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much, Donnie. This was wonderful. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much, Ali. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you to everyone for listening. Come back next week when we have another inspiring story. And in the meantime, stay connected.